Section 2 of The Adventures of Buffalo Bill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jewel Raquel. The Adventures of Buffalo Bill by William F. Cody, Colonel. Rounding Up Indians. In October 1867, General Sheridan organized an expedition to operate against the Indians who infested the Republican River region. Cody, said he, I have decided to appoint you as guide and chief of scouts with the command. How does that suit you? First rate, General, and thank you for the honor, I replied, as gracefully as I knew how. The dog-soldier Indians were a band of Cheyennes and unruly, turbulent members of other tribes who would not enter into any treaty or keep a treaty if they made one, and who had always refused to go upon a reservation. They were a warlike body of well-built, daring, and restless braves, and were determined to hold possession of the country in the vicinity of the Republican and Solomon Rivers. They were called dog-soldiers, because they were principally Cheyennes, a name derived from the French chien, a dog. On the 3rd of October the 5th Cavalry arrived at Fort Hayes. General Sheridan, being anxious to punish the Indians who had lately fought General Forsyth, did not give the regiment much of a rest, and accordingly on the 5th of October it began its march for the Beaver Creek country. The first night we camped on the south fork of Big Creek, four miles west of Hayes City. By this time I had become pretty well acquainted with Major Brown and Captain Sweetman, who invited me to mess with them on this expedition, and a jolly mess we had. There were other scouts in the command besides myself, and I particularly remember Tom Renahan, Hank Fields, and a character called Nosey, on account of his long nose. The next day we marched thirty miles, and late in the afternoon we came into camp on the south fork of the Solomon. At this encampment Colonel Royal asked me to go out and kill some buffaloes for the boys. "'All right, Colonel. Send along a wagon or two to bring in the meat,' I said. I am not in the habit of sending out my wagons until I know that there is something to be hauled in. Kill your buffaloes first, and then I'll send out the wagons, was the colonel's reply. I said no more, but went out on a hunt, and after a short absence returned and asked the colonel to send out his wagons over the hill for the half-dozen buffaloes I had killed. The following afternoon he again requested me to go out and get some fresh buffalo meat. I didn't ask him for any wagons this time but rode out some distance, and coming up with a small herd, I managed to get seven of them headed straight for the encampment, and instead of shooting them just then, I ran them at full speed right into the camp, and then killed them all, one after another in rapid succession. Colonel Royal witnessed the whole proceeding, which puzzled him somewhat, as he could see no reason why I had not killed them on the prairie. He came up rather angrily, and demanded an explanation." "'I can't allow any such business as this, Cody,' said he. "'What do you mean by it?' "'I didn't care about asking for any wagons this time, Colonel, "'so I thought I would make the buffaloes furnish their own transportation,' was my reply. "'The Colonel saw the point in a moment, and had no more to say on the subject. "'No Indians had been seen in the vicinity during the day, "'and Colonel Royal, having carefully posted his pickets, "'supposed everything was serene for the night.' but before morning we were aroused from our slumbers by hearing shots fired, and immediately afterward one of the mounted pickets came galloping into camp, saying that there were Indians close at hand. The companies all fell into line, and were soon prepared and anxious to give the redskins battle. 
but as the men were yet new in the Indian country a great many of them were considerably excited. No Indians, however, made their appearance, and upon going to the picket post where the picket said he had seen them none could be found, nor could any traces of them be discovered. The sentinel, who was an Irishman, insisted that there had certainly been redskins there. "'But you must be mistaken,' said the Colonel Royal. "'Upon my soul, Colonel, I'm not. As sure as my name's Pat Maloney, one of them redskins hit me on the head with a club, so he did,' said Pat. And so, when morning came, the mystery was further investigated, and was easily solved. Elk tracks were found in the vicinity, and it was undoubtedly a herd of elks that had frightened Pat. As he had turned to run, he had gone under a limb of a tree against which he hit his head, and supposed he had been struck by a club in the hands of an Indian. It was hard to convince Pat, however, of the truth. A three days' uninteresting march brought us to Beaver Creek, where we were camped, and from which point scouting parties were set out in different directions. None of these, however, discovering Indians, they all returned to camp about the same time, finding it in a state of great excitement, it having been attacked a few hours previously by a party of Indians, who had succeeded in killing two men, and in making off with sixty horses belonging to Company H. That evening the command started on the trail of these Indian horse-thieves, Major Brown with two companies and three days' rations pushing ahead in advance of the main command. Being unsuccessful, however, in overtaking the Indians, and getting nearly out of provisions, it being our eighteenth day out, the entire command marched toward the nearest railway point and camped on the Saline River, distant three miles from Buffalo Tank. While waiting for supplies, we received a new commanding officer, Brevet Major General E. A. Carr, who was the senior major of the regiment and who had ranked Colonel Royal. He brought with him the celebrated Forsyth Scouts, who were commanded by Lieutenant Pepoon, a regular army officer. The next morning, at an early hour, the command started out on a hunt for Indians. General Carr, having a pretty good idea where he would be most likely to find them, directed me to guide them by the nearest route to Elephant Rock on Beaver Creek. Upon arriving at the south fork of the Beaver on the second day's march, we discovered a large, fresh Indian trail, which we hurriedly followed for a distance of eight miles, when suddenly we saw on the bluffs ahead of us quite a large number of Indians. General Carr ordered Lieutenant Pepoon's scouts and Company M to the front. This company was commanded by Lieutenant Shinoski, a Frenchman by birth and reckless by nature. Having advanced his company nearly a mile ahead of the main command, about four hundred Indians suddenly charged down upon him and gave him a lively little fight, until he was supported by our full force. The Indians kept increasing in numbers all the while, until it was estimated that we were fighting from eight hundred to one thousand of them. The engagement became quite general, and several were killed and wounded on each side. The Indians were evidently fighting to give their families and village a chance to get away. We had undoubtedly surprised them with a larger force than they had expected to see in that part of the country. We fought them until dark, all the time driving them before us. At night they annoyed us considerably by firing down into our camp from the higher hills, and several times the command was ordered to dislodge them from their position and drive them back. After having returned from one of these sallies, Major Brown, Captain Sweetman, and Lieutenant Bache and myself were taking supper together when Wang came a bullet into Lieutenant Bache's plate breaking a hole through it. The bullet came from the gun of one of the Indians, who had returned to the high bluff overlooking our camp. Major Brown declared it was a crack shot, because it broke the plate. We finished our supper without having any more such close calls. 
At daylight next morning we struck out on the trail, and soon came to the spot where the Indians had camped the day before. We could see that their village was a very large one, consisting of about five hundred lodges, and we pushed forward rapidly from this point on the trail which ran back toward Prairie Dog Creek. About two o'clock we came in sight of the retreating village, and soon the warriors turned back to give us battle. They set fire to the prairie grass in front of us and on all sides in order to delay us as much as possible. We kept up a running fight for the remainder of the afternoon, and the Indians repeatedly attempted to lead us off the track of their flying village. But their trail was easily followed, as they were continually dropping teepee poles, camp kettles, robes, furs, and all heavy articles belonging to them. They were evidently scattering, and it finally became difficult for us to keep on the main trail. When darkness set in, we went into camp, and it being useless to try to follow the Indians after nightfall. Next morning we were again on the trail. The Indians soon scattered in every direction, but we followed the main trail to the Republican River, where we made a cut-off, and then went north toward the Platte River. We found, however, that the Indians, by traveling night and day, had got a long start, and the General concluded that it was useless to follow them any farther. The General told me that the next day's march would be toward the headwaters of the Beaver, and asked me the distance. I replied that it was about twenty-five miles, and he said he would make it the next day. Getting an early start in the morning, we struck out across the prairie, my position as guide being ahead of the advanced guard. About two o'clock General Cart overtook me, and asked me how far I supposed it was to water. I thought it was about eight miles, although we could see no sign or indication of any stream in front. "'Papoon scouts say you are going in the wrong direction,' said the General. "'And in the way you are bearing it will be fifteen miles before you can strike any of the branches of the beaver.' and that when you do, you will find no water, for the beavers are dry at this time of the year at that point. "'General, I think the scouts are mistaken,' said I, "'for the beaver has more water near its head than it has below, and at the place where we will strike the stream we will find immense beaver dams large enough and strong enough to cross the whole command if you wish.' "'Well, Cody, go ahead,' said he. "'I'll leave it to you, but remember that I don't want a dry camp.' "'No danger of that.' said I, and then I rode on, leaving him to return to the command. As I had predicted, we found water, seven or eight miles farther on, where we came upon a beautiful little stream, a tributary of the beaver, hidden in the hills. We had no difficulty in selecting a good halting place, and obtaining fresh spring water and grass. The general, upon learning from me that the stream, which was only eight or nine miles long, had no name, took out his map and located it, and named it Cody's Creek which name it still bears. We pulled out early next morning for the beaver, and when we were approaching the stream I rode on ahead of the advance guard in order to find the crossing. Just as I turned a bend of the creek, bang went a shot, and down went my horse, myself with him. I disentangled myself and jumped behind the dead body. Looking in the direction whence the shot had come I saw two Indians, and at once turned my gun loose on them, but in the excitement of the moment I missed my aim. They fired two or three more shots, and I returned the compliment wounding one of their horses. On the opposite side of the creek, going over the hill, I observed a few lodges moving rapidly away, and also some mounted warriors, who could see me, and who kept blazing away with their guns. The two Indians who had fired at me, and had killed my horse, were retreating across the creek on a beaver dam. I sent a few shots after them to accelerate their speed, and also fired at the ones on the other side of the stream. I was undecided as to whether it was best to run back to the command on foot, or hold my position. 
I knew that within a few minutes the troops would come up, and I therefore decided to hold my position. The Indians, seeing that I was alone, turned and charged down the hill, and were about to recross the creek to corral me, when the advance guard of the command put in an appearance on the ridge and dashed forward to my rescue. The redskins whirled and made off. When General Carr came up, he ordered Company I to go in pursuit of the band. I accompanied Lieutenant Brady, who commanded, and we had a running fight with the Indians lasting several hours. We captured several head of their horses and most of their lodges. At night we returned to the command, which by this time had crossed the creek on the Beaver Dam. We scouted for several days along the river, and had two or three lively skirmishes. Finally our supplies began to run low, and General Carr gave orders to return to Fort Wallace, which we reached three days afterward, and where we remained several days. Very soon after, General Carr received orders from General Sheridan for a winter's campaign in the Canadian River country, instructing him to proceed at once to Fort Lyon, Colorado, and there to fit out for the expedition. Leaving Fort Wallace in November 1868, we arrived at Fort Lyon in the latter part of the month without special incident, and at once began our preparations for invading the enemy's country. General Penrose had left his post three weeks previously with a command of some three hundred men. He had taken no wagons with him, and his supply train was composed only of pack mules. General Carr was ordered to follow with supplies on his trail and overtake him as soon as possible. I was particularly anxious to catch up with Penrose's command, as my old friend Wild Bill was among his scouts. We followed the trail very easily for the first three days, and then we were caught in Freeze-Out Canyon by a fearful snowstorm, which compelled us to go into camp for a day. The ground now being covered with snow, we found it would be impossible to follow Penrose's trail any farther, especially as he had left no sign to indicate the direction he was going. General Carr sent for me, and said that as it was very important that we should not lose the trail, he wished that I would take some scouts with me, and while the command remained in camp, push on as far as possible, and see if I could not discover some traces of Penrose or where he had camped at any time. Accompanied by four men, I started out in the blinding snowstorm, taking a southerly direction. We rode twenty-four miles, and upon reaching a tributary of the Cimarron, we scouted up and down the stream for a few miles, and finally found one of Penrose's old camps. It was now late in the afternoon, and as the command would come up the next day, it was not necessary for all of us to return with the information to General Carr. So riding down into a sheltered place in the bend of the creek, we built a fire, and broiled some venison from a deer which we had shot during the day, and after eating a substantial meal, I left the four men there while I returned to bring up the troops. It was eleven o'clock at night when I got back to the camp. A light was still burning in the General's tent, he having remained awake anxiously awaiting my return. He was glad to see me, and was overjoyed at the information I brought, for he had great fears concerning the safety of General Penrose. The command took up its march next day for the Cimarron, and had a hard tramp of it, on account of the snow having drifted to a great depth in many of the ravines, and in some places the teamsters had to shuffle their way through. We arrived at the Cimarron at sundown, and went into camp. Upon looking around next morning we found that Penrose, having been unencumbered by wagons, had kept on the west side of the Cimarron, and the country was so rough that it was impossible for us to stay on his trail with our wagons. But knowing that we would certainly follow down the river, General Carr concluded to take the best wagon route along the stream, which I discovered to be on the east side. Before we could make any headway with our wagon train, we had to leave the river and get out on the divide. 
We were very fortunate that day in finding a splendid road for some distance, until we were all at once brought to a standstill on a high tableland, overlooking a beautiful winding creek that lay far below us in the valley. The question that troubled us was how we were to get the wagons down. We were now in the foothills of the Ratoon Mountains, and the bluff we were on was very steep. "'Cody, we're in a nice fix now,' said General Carr. "'Oh, that's nothing,' was my reply. "'But you can never take the train down,' said he. "'Never you mind the train, General. You say you are looking for a good camp. How does that beautiful spot down in the valley suit you?' I asked him. "'That will do. I can easily descend with the cavalry. But how to get the wagons down there is a puzzle to me,' said he. "'By the time you are located in your camp, your wagon shall be there.' said I. "'All right, Cody, I'll leave it to you, as you seem to want to be boss,' he replied pleasantly. He at once ordered the command to dismount and lead the horses down the mountainside. The wagon train was a mile in the rear, and when it came up one of the drivers asked, "'How are we going down there?' "'Run down, slide down, or fall down, any way to get down,' said I. "'We can never do it. It's too steep. The wagons will run over the mules,' said another wagon-master." "'I guess not. The mules have got to keep out of the way,' was my reply. I told Wilson, the chief wagon-master, to bring on his mess-wagon, which was at the head of the train, and I would try the experiment at least. Wilson drove the team and wagon to the brink of the hill, and following my directions he brought out some extra chains, with which we locked the wheels on each side, and then rough-locked them. We now started the wagon down the hill. The wheel-horses, or rather the wheel-mules, were good on the hold-back, and we got along finely until we nearly reached the bottom, when the wagon crowded the mule so hard that they started on a run and galloped down into the valley and to the place where General Carr had located his camp. Three other wagons immediately followed in the same way, and in half an hour every wagon was in camp, without the least accident having occurred. It was indeed an exciting sight to see the six mule teams come straight down the mountain and finally break into a full run. At times it looked as if the wagons would turn a somersault and land on the mules. This proved to be a lucky march for us, as far as gaining on Penrose was concerned, for the route he had taken on the west side of the stream turned out to be a bad one, and we went with our immense wagon train as far in one day as Penrose had in seven. His command had marched on to a plateau or high tableland so steep that not even a pack-mule could descend it, and he was obliged to retrace his steps a long way thus losing three days' time, as we afterward learned. From this point on, for several days, we had no trouble in following Penrose's trail, which led us in a southeasterly direction toward the Canadian River. No Indians were seen, nor any signs of them found. One day, while riding in advance of the command down San Francisco Creek, I heard someone calling my name from a little bunch of willow brush on the opposite bank, and upon looking closely at the spot, I saw a negro, "'Sakes alive, Massa Bill, um, that you?' asked the man, whom I recognized as one of the colored soldiers of the Tenth Cavalry. I next heard him say to someone in the brush, "'Come out of here. Does Massa Buffalo Bill?' Then he sang out, "'Massa Bill, is you got any hardtack?' "'Nary a hardtack, but the wagons will be along presently, and then you can get all you want,' said I. "'That's the best news I's here for sixteen long days, Massa Bill.' said he. "'Where's your command? Where's General Penrose?' "'I don't know,' said the darky. "'We got lost, and we've been starving ever since.' 
By this time, two other Negroes had emerged from their place of concealment. They had deserted Penrose's command, which was out of rations and nearly in a starving condition, and were trying to make their way back to Fort Lyon. General Carr concluded, from what they could tell him, that General Penrose was somewhere on Paladora Creek, but we could not learn anything definite, for they knew not where they were themselves. Having learned that General Penrose's troops were in such bad shape, General Carr ordered Major Brown to start out the next morning with two companies of cavalry and fifty pack mules loaded with provisions, and to make all possible speed to reach and relieve the suffering soldiers. I accompanied this detachment, and on the third day out we found the half-famished soldiers camped on the Paladora. The camp presented a pitiful sight indeed. For over two weeks the men had had only quarter rations, and were now nearly starved to death. Over two hundred horses and mules were lying dead, having died from fatigue and starvation. General Penrose, fearing that General Carr would not find him, had sent back a company of the Seventh Cavalry to Fort Lyon for supplies, but no word had as yet been heard from them. The rations which Major Brown brought to the command came none too soon, and were the means of saving many lives. General Carr, upon arriving with his force, took command of all the troops, he being the senior officer and ranking General Penrose. After selecting a good camp, he unloaded the wagons and sent them back to Fort Lyon for fresh supplies. He then picked out five hundred of the best men and horses, and, taking his pack train with him, started south for the Canadian River, leaving the rest of the troops at the supply camp. For several days we scouted along the Canadian River, but found no signs of Indians. General Carr then went back to his camp, and soon afterward our wagon train came in from Fort Lyon with a fresh load of provisions. At length, our horses and mules having become sufficiently recruited to return, we returned to Fort Lyon, arriving there in March, 1869, where the command was to rest and recruit for thirty days before proceeding to the Department of the Platte, whither it had been ordered. End of Rounding Up Indians